If you like music's greatest mysteries, you've got to check out Dan Rather's The Big Interview for some incredible true stories from the biggest names in music. Check out the podcast sometime. On this episode of Music's Greatest Mysteries, are the Grateful Dead part of a CIA conspiracy? They want to get them LSD. LSD, get them LSD so they would trip, depoliticize, and lose their minds. Next, what is K-pop's Black Ocean? Black Ocean can make or break a group. It is the ultimate diss. And finally, who is Carly Simon's You're So Vain really about? How much fun has it been trying to figure out who it is? Their career spans more than half a century. They've been at ground zero for a cultural revolution. And even today, still one of the highest grossing bands on the planet. Playing sold out shows to their loyal and sometimes chemically enhanced fan base. The Deadheads. We're just like living in shells ourselves, you know? These are what we're in now, but we're here to learn lessons and go on further. Acid doesn't harm the human body. It makes you feel all the emotions you're supposed to feel in life in general. But does the Grateful Dead's connection to LSD have a more sinister relationship? After its discovery in 1938, the U.S. military sees value in the drug. Not many people realize the U.S. military used LSD for mind control. Is it possible that the Grateful Dead were part of a covert government operation? In the mid-1950s, the United States is entrenched in the Cold War. The communist mission is to drive ahead toward the complete destruction of the old system in order to have a free hand of the new. The American intelligence networks were going to use any weapons to stop the Soviet Union, which they saw as bent on world conquest. One of these new tools goes beyond war machines or bombs, infiltrating the enemy mines. To utilize this power, a secret CIA operation dubbed MKUltra is created in 1953. MKUltra is a unit for the use of biological and chemical materials to affect human behavior. In other words, mind control. One of the drugs is principally LSD. It's used to experiment on people as somewhat of a truth serum and see how far it could make people go, what they could do to control them. I feel these lovely colors vibrating all over me. Oh, it's lovely. Some good things might have come out of it, but it was used for a very sinister idea to be used as a weapon. And I can feel the air. I can, I can see it. I can see all the molecules. For 20 years, MKUltra secretly tests their new weapon on a variety of subjects. They gave it to prisoners, the mentally ill. In other words, people that couldn't really fight back. The CIA was doing tests on army bed people. It was horrible what they did. We have seen some of the effects of LSD. What effect would it have on the vital operations? Further research is required to give us that If you trick somebody into taking them, it can ruin your life. 
This was part of a time also in the 1950s where there was almost no oversight of the CIA. They conducted these experiments. Uh, people died. Uh, one committed suicide. But some participants of the CIA experiments are volunteers, college students, unaware of who was actually behind the plan and what the true purpose is. There was tons of people involved in this. You had the poet, Allen Ginsberg. And unwittingly, to prisoners too. And the craziest one was Whitey Bulger, the mobster, who the CIA gave LSD to every day for a year. While other volunteers would directly shape the Grateful Dead. Robert Hunter, the famed lyricist for the Grateful Dead, got his first LSD through the MK Ultra program. You know, Robert Hunter, one of the dead's like premier songwriters, he took it, he loved it. And then he started writing songs like Dark Star. The most famous recipient is Ken Kesey, the author who writes One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And he wrote a good chunk of that novel on LSD, in fact. Kesey applies what he learns to a new cause, his own LSD experiments. And after a cross-country LSD trek with his band of merry pranksters, he settles in the San Francisco area to launch the acid tests. The acid test is everywhere in this spaceship. Everywhere you are, you're all acid testing and acid tasting. Inside the confines of this inner spatial dome, you will find the acid test taking place. They were experimenting with mind-expanding drugs. You know, taking LSD was not like having a drink. <laughs> you had a bunch of people take acid and the Grateful Dead just happened to be the soundtrack at all those parties. The thing was, it was all happening in the San Francisco area. So the guys in the Grateful Dead were around, and then they became the house band, starting as the Warlocks and then changing their name to the Grateful Dead. So if Kesey and the Grateful Dead lyricist Robert Hunter were part of MKUltra, are these new acid tests a continuation of a secret government program? This time, not to fight communism, but to stop the growing anti-war movement at home. The government was so worried about the influence that music had on the youth of America. They wanted to get them LSD. LSD, get them LSD, so they would trip and become like zombies, depoliticize, and lose their minds. They'd be like, hey, take this. You like the dead? I got a concert you can see. Next, we'll answer the question, does the CIA extend Cold War mind control experiments to the anti-war movement and target fans of the Grateful Dead? The FBI and CIA were super interested in what the counterculture was doing. Later, a look into the wild fan base of K-pop and their weapon called a Black Ocean. The Black Ocean doesn't happen a lot, but when it does, it's pretty brutal. By the mid-1960s, the CIA's LSD experiments have expanded from their secret MKUltra program and moved into the counterculture of San Francisco under Ken Kesey's acid tests. 
and The Grateful Dead becomes the soundtrack for these trips. It was definitely a portrait of mayhem. Sometimes they'd play for six hours and sometimes they'd play for 30 minutes. It's just really whatever way the vibe and the LSD, whatever direction that took them in. Were these tests merely to expand the mind or were they designed by the CIA to quell the anti-war movement? It's not crazy to think that the FBI and CIA was monitoring them. They were super interested in what the counterculture was doing. The CIA was trying to figure out if, if we give them these drugs, will they do what we want? The great irony is that hippies and Haight-Ashbury got a hold of LSD, they took it, and they became even less compliant. So if the CIA were trying to tamp down some kind of anti-government views, uh, it, it certainly backfired. After nearly a year of acid tests, Kesey holds a graduation ceremony in October 1966 to end the experiments. When I first proposed the idea to Jerry Garcia, the leader of the Grateful Dead who's playing up there now, it's time to graduate from acid. He says, hallelujah. The Grateful Dead move on to spearhead the countercultural revolution and become one of the biggest bands in the world, but are forever linked with psychedelic drug use. So is there any truth to these rumors or connections to the CIA? Before his death in 2019, dead lyricist Robert Hunter is asked the question, was the CIA behind the counterculture? His cryptic answer, I don't know. I think the answer is, who can say? There's a lot of stories that a lot of those people were paid by the CIA. And whether or not anybody in the Grateful Dead had any true knowledge that it was the actual government doing this, that I'm not sure about. To suggest the dead were in cahoots with the FBI and CIA is so antithetical to everything that they stood for. Was Jerry Garcia in the CIA? No way, Jose. In the past decade, K-pop has gone from a regional obsession to a global sensation. Please welcome Blackpink. Its popularity is without precedent, with streams numbering in the billions. That's just, you know, the world of K-pop. They're always doing it bigger, more extreme, and doing it louder than everyone else. When they got to LAX, it was like the Beatles were here. But with its growing celebrity, come soaring expectations and intense scrutiny. These K-pop groups can't be seen in any negative light. Just one false move and this vivid spotlight can turn pitch black. It's called the Black Ocean and it's the most frightening phenomenon in music's newest craze. To fully understand the world of K-pop requires a look at the culture that creates it. Koreans have a beautiful way of storytelling. They do that in such a powerful way. It's a lot more personal, it's a lot more charming, romantic and elegant. K-pop, it really is considered clean and wholesome. That's part of its appeal. They want it to show almost like a fantasy world of beauty and perfection. 
And that's really one of the main ways that K-pop groups demonstrate what they think is valuable and beautiful about South Korea. The genre begins in the early 90s, but remains insulated, promoting South Korea's beauty only internally. Until... K-pop has been around for as long as I can remember, but only recently has the world become aware of it. It became a sales juggernaut, the kind of which we haven't seen in a long time. Buoyed by the success of Psy's international hit, K-pop immediately becomes one of South Korea's most visible global exports. While revolutionizing audience engagement in the form of glow sticks. When you look out at a big K-pop concert, you are going to see what's called an ocean of lights. Typically, fans are given light sticks that they get to use when they're excited or a certain song comes on. There really is nothing like a K-pop show, especially when there's 50, 60,000 people with the lights flashing and just everyone is so happy to be there and so grateful. But what happens when that audience turns on its idols? When those glow sticks become weapons and the lights cut to black? The black ocean is something that doesn't happen a lot, but when it does, it's pretty brutal. And unfortunately, K-pop can't escape it. Coming up, a look at K-pop's black ocean and how anyone can fall victim. Katy Perry got the black ocean treatment for uh, saying the wrong thing, which you can't do. And later, a quest to solve the riddle of You're So Vain. You're So Vain is a perfect lyrical mystery because it applies to everybody without being specific. But that Carly Simon was singing that to someone. The world of K-pop is uniquely fan-friendly. Members of the audience bring LED glow sticks to the shows in support of their heroes. You're holding this little light stick that's flashing along to their dance moves. How can you not feel like you're a part of that show? It really is magical. But when they're not seeing those light sticks and, and, and hearing those roars, it's a nightmare because an artist on stage, you know, they feed off the crowd of, of an audience, right? So we're like, what has happened? What has gone wrong here? Enter the Black Ocean. A Black Ocean is when all of those lights are done. The arena is black. It's a sign that, yeah, we as fans, we're, we're turning our lights off. We're, we're not happy with what's going on. The phenomenon begins at an award show in 2008. And in 2016, the most popular K-pop band on the planet, BTS falls victim. Even Katy Perry experiences it in 2019 after criticizing the age of BTS fans. Most of you look at the same way past your bedtime. Katy Perry said something referring to 
K-pop stands or BTS fans as kids. The crowd turns off their LED lights and some begin to leave the concert. Katy Perry got the Black Ocean treatment for uh, saying the wrong thing, which you can't do. Don't mess with K-pop stands. That's, I think that's the lesson learned there. Even though the Black Ocean isn't a career ender, it serves as a constant watchdog from a culture and fan base that demands perfection always. These fans are tremendously loyal, devoted, and it's not just 20,000, 30,000, 50,000 fans. You're talking the numbers of 70, 100. So Black Ocean is a powerful tool. It can make or break a group. A Black Ocean is the ultimate diss. Carly Simon is an enduring symbol of the 70s. It really is the greatest pressure to be able to say welcome to Carly Simon. With four platinum records, two Grammys, and an Oscar, her musical legacy is forever cemented. Carly Simon. But it's a singular question from her biggest hit that has confounded fans for half a century. So who is it about? Well, who could the song be about? Everybody wants to know who the song is about. I think we all really want to know the answer, but how much fun has it been trying to figure out who it is? In 1972, Carly releases the single that changes her career forever. It's a very playful song. I think she kind of throws it out there. It is a taunt. You're So Vain is a perfect lyrical mystery because it applies to everybody without being specific. But that Carly Simon was singing that to someone we don't know who. Who is the person that's so vain? Who is the guy you're singing about? I don't know why people are so interested in that. She's never fessed up, and she's never definitively said, yes, it's about this person. But uh, she has an impressive list of uh, famous men there that she may have hung out with and dated at the time. That's interesting in and of itself. I mean, we've heard it might be about, you know, James Taylor, who was her ex-husband. Jack Nicholson. Michael Crichton. John Travolta. Chris Christopherson. Geldof, Bob Geldof. David Bowie. David Cassidy. Sean Connery. Cat Stevens. Marvin Gaye, Jeremy Irons. David Geffen. Warren Beatty. Mick Jagger. He's on the record. If I were Mick Jagger and I sang on the song and I found out it wasn't about me, I might raise an eyebrow. Next, Carly sprinkles some breadcrumbs, but are they enough to solve the riddle? Tell us! Carly Simon's signature hit, You're So Vain, is released in 1972. And in the 50 years since, she's revealed very little about the song's mystery muse or muses. Just answer that question. Is that about Warren Beatty? No, it is not. It's not not about Warren. Carly has insinuated it's about three different guys. Warren Beatty was indeed the inspiration for the second verse, which leaves verses one and three wide open. 2004, she gives us these clues. The name of the person it was about had an E in it. 
Oh, well, thank you. That's, that's very helpful, Carly. Maybe I could disclose another letter. See, it also has an A. So we can narrow that down a little bit. I'm going to add one to it. Going to add one to it? I'm going to add an Would you R. Like an R, I know. Yes. We know it's not about Chris Christopherson. It's not about Jack Nicholson. We've gotten to eliminate David Cassidy. Cat Stevens, he's been crossed off the list, too. It's not about John Travolta. It's not about David Bowie. It could still be about Sean Connery. We still have some huge names on that suspect list. Based on the clues, that leaves Marvin Gaye, Sean Connery, James Taylor, and Mick Jagger among the candidates. Allegedly, both Taylor Swift and Howard Stern are among the inner circle that know the truth. But will we ever find out? all about mystique. Keep it a secret. If Carly Simon told us right away, we would not be talking about that song. A song that half a century later still has no answer to its riddle. The world of K-pop and its impassioned fan base. And a CIA mind control operation and its ties to the Grateful Dead. They're all part of music's greatest mysteries. Thank you for joining us for Music's Greatest Mysteries, where we investigate the legendary mysteries surrounding the biggest names in music. Now remember, if you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Also, go ahead and leave us a review and don't keep the show a secret. Tell a friend. <laughs>